The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Good evening, Maranatha. It's good to be here with you. Excited to open the word and get back into Colossians tonight. So, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Colossians chapter 1. And we have a really good section of scripture that we're going to be looking at tonight. A lot of great things in there that I want to chew on and digest with you. But um, before we get to that, I have just a couple of things I wanted to make you aware of. Um, And the first one is this um, next Wednesday is going to be the first Wednesday of the month, and we've set that time aside here for our worship nights. And I just want to make a personal appeal to all of you to try to be there for that. Um, I have a sense from the Lord, and I've had a growing sense for some time now, that we are entering a season of intense spiritual warfare. Maybe you've sensed that. Maybe you've felt that. I feel quite strongly that we're entering into, we've already been in one, but we're entering into a season of of intense spiritual warfare. And when you look at the scriptures, um, oftentimes the way that God would lead his people into the battle was through the weapon of worship. And he would have the worshipers go first. And so I've been praying and asking the Lord, how can I integrate my calling as a pastor and a teacher of the word with my calling as a worship leader. And so I think these worship nights are going to be an opportunity for me to do that. I plan on joining the worship team and just really digging in deep as a church family and seeing what the Lord would say to us. So that's this Wednesday. And the other thing I wanted to do, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to give you an update on where things are with this Red Heifer project that my dad got involved with um, a while ago. And so um, some of you know, and Perhaps some of you don't, that right before Christmas and right before my dad got sick, he went out to Texas. And while he was there, he met up with a delegation of Jewish rabbis who were there for the sole purpose of inspecting these red heifers that had been selected. There were, as you already know, seven red heifers that had been found. And the significance of that is found in Numbers chapter 19. Before the third temple can be built, one of the precursors to that is you have to sacrifice this red cow. And, and so the specifications for that are very, very specific. And um, anyways, they found seven of them. Well, my dad went out there, and he, was met, with this, he met with this group of Jewish rabbis, including, and I'm, I'm not sure, I, I can't tell you exactly who he is, but they've identified who they're saying is going to be the next chief rabbi in all of Israel. And he was there personally to inspect these red heifers to see if they passed the inspection. And uh, my dad shot this little video, and I want to share it with you. And uh, it's just him doing what he does, pastoring, so excited about this project. So just go ahead and turn your attention to the screens. Awesome. I got to get all these people. All of these people are here today, standing outside in December in Texas, uh, getting ready to talk about this red heifer. That's the mama heifer there, but the little baby one that has been found kosher and clean 
is right in there underneath the mom and uh, man people are just having an amazing exciting time look at this we still have a half hour to start and uh, people are just going crazy saying what in the world's happening the red heifer the temple come Lord Jesus as only Ray Bentley can do it right and you got to see a little glimpse of the red heifer there in the background. Well, by the way, I just wanted you to know that now the number of red heifers that have been found in Texas is up to 21. And our church is personally involved with that project. We're going to be helping to pay the cost to transport these cows over to the Holy Land. And we're going to see this project all the way through to its completion. Couldn't be more thrilled or excited about all that God is doing. So the Lord is coming back soon. Amen. 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 With that, we can jump into our study in the word. And the title of my message for you this evening is the minister and his ministry. Now, I realize it's been well over a month now since we've studied together the book of Colossians. And the plan is to just kind of pick up where my dad left off. So we're there in chapter one. And uh, since it's been so long, I thought by way of review, I could just let you guys know that this church was planted in a city called Colossae. Now, Paul, the apostle, had never personally been to this city. He'd never even met these believers. And yet his heart was moved for them. He had a pastor's or a shepherd's heart for them. He heard about their faith in the Lord and their love for one another. And it compelled him to write this letter of encouragement and exhortation to them. And, and that's kind of the backdrop of the letter. And in the passage we're going to be looking at today, Paul is going to give us a window into his heart. He's going to give us his motivation for serving in the ministry. Since we take our cues from scripture, this text will also provide all of you a glimpse into the heart that is hopefully going to continue to drive us as a church. And I think it's so fitting that the Lord would lead us to this particular text on this particular weekend. God has been doing that throughout the last four weeks and he's done it yet again here um, because we get to see this man of God and his heart for the ministry. And I was thinking about that in relation to where we're at as a church. Because as a church, we've had one pastor for the last 38 years. And he was the guy at the helm. And we knew that there was a steady hand on the ship's steering wheel. And so we didn't have to wonder about what are the motivations of this ministry and where are we going as a ministry. But now, there's a new guy. <laughs> and so the question is, where are we going? And what is the heartbeat of this ministry? And I believe this text we're going to be looking at tonight will help shed some light on that and provide some answers. It's a bit like this. In the olden days, when they used to sail by the light of the stars, they didn't have GPS systems or any fancy equipment like that. They had to rely on the stars and they would always identify the North Star because it was a fixed point in the night sky and so they could steer and navigate their vessel based on that fixed location of the North Star. And that's kind of how I'm viewing this text. It's going to help us stay on course. This is our North Star for what a successful ministry looks like. So go ahead and read with me there, beginning in verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. We'll talk about that. 
And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. All right, so Paul tells us here in a nutshell about his ministry. And the first thing he says is that he rejoices in his suffering. And so this 24th verse that we're going to begin looking at, I've put under the heading, the good thing about suffering. (laughs) Did you know that there's actually one or two good things about suffering? I mean, it is striking, isn't it, that, that Paul would say what he says here. I rejoice in what I'm suffering. Suffice it to say, Paul the apostle had a very different relationship with suffering than maybe perhaps you or I do, right? From a worldly perspective, what he says here sounds absolutely nuts. Can you just nod your head at me so we're all on the same page? This is not normal, right? In the modern Western church, which we're a part of, we try to avoid suffering and hardship at all costs. But when you look at Paul and his life, when you look at the example of the early church, rather than sulk about their suffering, they had this attitude of embracing it. Why? Here's why. Paul alludes to it in the text. He says he knew that God was producing something in the church because of the suffering he was enduring. He did it for their sake. He did it for the sake of the church. Paul could see how God was using his suffering to embolden the believers around the cities that he had planted and pastored churches. And he saw how God was using it to strengthen their faith. In fact, the the very fact that they were reading this letter was an indication that God was using his suffering. You see, Paul wrote Colossians from a prison cell. And perhaps Paul got to thinking, you know, if I wasn't suffering in this prison cell, I wouldn't have probably stopped or slowed down long enough to pick up a pen and write these letters. And look how God is using my letters to encourage the believers in these churches that I've planted all over the Roman Empire. If Paul hadn't suffered, we might not have half of our New Testament. (laughs) And that's always the way it's worked. You see, the gospel has always spread through missionary hardship. Historically speaking, every time the church has endured seasons of suffering, when it's endured persecution, it has thrived. In fact, I love the way one early church father put it. He said, the blood of the martyrs, the martyrs, those who had died for their profession of faith, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was the very thing that God used to grow his church, in other words. Now, we know that on the flip side of that, every time the church has experienced prolonged seasons of blessing, seasons of comfort and ease. She tends to struggle. (laughs) And so as a church, we're moving into a season again where I believe the Lord is turning up the heat. Have you felt that? And you can see this happening 
all around the globe, but you can see it happening right here in, in our own city, in our own location where we live. And God is turning up the heat, and, and we tend to bristle at that. But maybe it's not such a bad thing, because if we can learn to leverage the hardship that we go through, God will use it to further his agenda, build his kingdom, and strengthen his church. Paul understood that, which is why he said, I rejoice in my suffering. And then he says something curious. He says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, that's a weird statement. And it's been a sentence that has generated all, all kinds of debate. So what, would, what was Paul talking about there? Was he somehow insinuating that Jesus' work on the cross, his atoning work on Calvary's hill was in some way or somehow incomplete? And I can shut that down. The answer is absolutely not, right? Why do we know that? Well, one of the first principles of studying scripture is you have to compare scripture with scripture. And based on everything else that Paul wrote, not only in this letter, but in all the letters he wrote, as well as the entire New Testament, we know that Jesus' work on the cross was complete and total so that it lacks nothing. So what is Paul talking about here then? If he says there's still something lacking with regards to Christ's afflictions, here's what he was referring to. He was referring to the continued suffering that we, you and I, often experience as believers. He says there's a sense in which Jesus shares in that suffering, so it's incomplete in that regard. You see, Paul learned this when he was confronted by the Lord on the Damascus Road. One of the first things that Jesus said to Paul in that very first encounter when they were being introduced was, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus talking to Saul at the time, whose name was later changed to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was persecuting the church. He thought he was persecuting Christians. But Jesus sheds light on that by saying, actually, the one you're really persecuting is me. And in that moment, Paul learned that Jesus views every attack on his church as a personal attack on himself. Another way of looking at it is to say this. Jesus shares in our suffering. Your pain is his pain. Our tears are his tears. And so in that regard, he continues to suffer every time we do. And that brings a closeness. We share a bond in that with him. It brings us to a deeper place in our walk. This is what Paul had in mind in Philippians chapter 3 when he talked about the fellowship of his sufferings. And I can speak from personal experience. This past month, having walked through everything that I've been through with the loss of my father, and I can tell you that as hard as it's been, I can at the same time tell you that I've never felt Jesus' presence more closely than I have in the last four weeks. The pain is very real but so is his presence. He's with us in our suffering, and he feels that pain. He walks with it, with us through it. So that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 24. Now, in this next section, in verse 25, we get a, a glimpse at the minister and his ministry. The minister and the ministry. Let's look at verse 25 again. I have become its, that's the church's, servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So Paul says, I've become the church's servant. Now, the word there he uses for servant, it's the Greek word diakonos. And it can either be translated as servant 
or minister. Those two words are interchangeable. And I like that because it paints an honest picture of what this is, what I do. I am here to serve the church. It's not that you guys are here to serve me. No, I'm here to serve the church. And, and oftentimes we get a fuzzy picture of, of ministers and the role that they hold, you know, and we elevate them and we put them on these pedestals from time to time and, and we think of them as these very lofty and high people and sometimes when I meet them and I'm talking with them and in a context they don't know who I am or what I do and they find out I'm a minister and immediately they like stand up a little straighter and I'm sorry did I use any curse words you know did I say anything I shouldn't have and they they just kind of you know do that kind of thing and people think I could never be a minister but at its core what you need to understand is a minister is purely and simply a servant Something else Paul tells us in this verse is that he received his commission into the ministry directly from God. And that's how it always works. You say, how do you become a pastor? Well, it's not the kind of thing that you're just like, I don't know. I worked at Chick-fil-A for a while, and then I tried my hand at this. And you know, pastors only work like one day a week. So maybe I'll give that a shot. It's, it's not something you just pursue because it's a field that interests you or you think it's a, a good way to make a living. No, the, the ministry is something that chooses you. It's a calling. Perhaps you've heard that phraseology. It's, have you been called into the ministry? Well, Paul's call, it came in dramatic fashion. He was on this donkey with a delegation of priests and, 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 and policemen, and they were on their way to this city called Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians. And the Lord stopped him dead in his tracks, and, and, and Paul saw this blinding light, and he was knocked off his horse. And Jesus has this conversation with Paul, and as a result of that encounter, he's blinded for the span of three days, and he's led by this delegation that he's with into the city of Damascus, and he's just wondering, what is going on? And I just had this incredible encounter with Jesus. And he's wondering, what are the next steps? And Jesus taps a man on the shoulder named Ananias. And he sends him to pray for Paul. And so Ananias goes and he prays for Paul. And it says like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. So he receives this miracle. And then Ananias begins to tell him about the ministry that God was going to give him. And he received his call into the ministry. Pretty dramatic, pretty powerful. I mean, I think if God shows up and taps you on the shoulder and says, you're my guy, that's what you do, right? I wanted to use this as an opportunity to tell you a little bit about the call that I received into ministry. And it's not nearly as dramatic as Paul's, but it's no less impactful to me. At the time, I was a young guy, maybe 22 years old, 21 years old, and I was attending Miracosta College. and lived down just steps from Wind and Sea Beach and was surfing during the day and going to school in the evening and working at a local restaurant. And at the same time, I was digging into the word like never before. It was like I had this appetite for the word that I just couldn't satisfy and, and, and just really wanting to know God and dig into his word. And one day in my devotions, I was reading through second, or 1 Timothy 2.15, or 2 Timothy 2.15, sorry. And it was through that particular verse which says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And when I got to that verse, you ever had this happen where you just stop right in your tracks? It was like the, 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 the words just lifted off the page and God 
directed them like an arrow right at my heart. And, and at this point in my life, I've, I've experienced that hundreds and thousands of times. It happens all the time. But for me, at that stage in my life, that was the first time where I really felt like there's something significant that God is speaking to me through this particular verse. And I prayed on it, and I felt like, study to show yourself approved unto God. I, I feel like there's something there. What are you calling me to, God? Where are you leading me? And it stirred my heart to go and check out the Bible College, which at the time was up in Murrieta, California. And so I drove up there just to check it out. And I walked into the bookstore. And on the back of one of their school sweatshirts, they had that exact verse. And I was like, whoa, what the heck? And I walked it up to the cashier. And they told me, yeah, that's the theme verse that we've picked for this year's you know, semester. And right then and there, I knew God was confirming through his word that this is where he was calling me. And as I said, I've had that happen so many times since then. And God has continued to confirm his calling in my life through the voices of trusted men and women as, as I've continued down this path of ministry. But that was where I received the call. Now, at this point, I'm guessing that there are at least a few of you, perhaps many more, who are thinking, well, that's great for Paul. And that's wonderful for you. But I'm not in the ministry. I don't receive my paycheck from a church. And so I'm struggling to see where this connects with my life. And here's what I want you to know. While not all of us have been called to the ministry, in the sense that you're not all going to get your paycheck from a church, vocationally, we haven't all been called to the ministry, but we have all been called to minister. Listen to this verse. This is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And I'd like it if we could read it together. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All right, did you hear what that verse just said? Regardless of what you do for a living or who signs your paycheck, as I said, this verse makes it clear that God expects all of us to minister to one another. Furthermore, it tells us that he's gifted each one of us and that those are the gifts that God has implanted within you so that you can then minister to the people around you in your community, in your context, at your career. It's a beautiful thought. I've heard it said like this. Your profession is what you get paid for, but your calling or your ministry is what you were made for. And that happens in a hundred different ways. I was thinking about that this week, and my wife and I were having a, a, a conversation about this. And you know what? When we moved to Colorado, she had the most wonderful ministry, and it took place at the local gym where we would go to work out. I told her she had a gymistry. <laughs> because she would just minister to people there and get in conversations with them. She's much friendlier than I am. She's much prettier than I am. She's just much more gifted and talented. She's, she's amazing. And she had this incredible gymistry where she would just connect with people. And it's incredible because some of the people that she met in the early days of our church plant there in Colorado ended up coming to the church, getting saved in the church, getting baptized in the church, getting discipled in the church. And when I left, they were on the board of the church. That's what you call a ministry. I have another friend who's in real estate, and he doesn't just view it as a way to make a living. He views it as a ministry. And he asks his clients, would it be all right with you if we prayed and asked the Lord to, to provide you with the perfect house or to get you the highest price? Or is there anything else you'd like me to pray for? 
And he just wades into that. The point is we are all called to minister to one another. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He received his commission from God. And then he goes on in verse 25 to say this, the commission God gave me was to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. So this was always Paul's goal with every church that he pastored and planted. And you can see this theme of wanting to present the fullness, the full counsel of God to these churches. It runs like a thread through many of the letters and teachings of Paul that we find in the New Testament. For example, as he was addressing the Ephesian elders in his departure from the city of Ephesus, one of the things he said to them was, and this is Acts 20, 27, I haven't hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And in our verse, he says that his job was to present the word of God in all its fullness. All he could do was present it. And I love that. I love the simplicity of that word. What happened from there was up to them. And I like that as a pastor, your pastor, because it takes all the pressure off of me. My job is to prepare and then to present. Your job is then to take the word and apply it to your life. If, to use an analogy, let's think of a baseball analogy. I'm, I'm here, and I've got the pitch, and we've made the call. I've communicated with the Lord, and he's given me a word to preach, and I'm up here, and I'm throwing the word at you. But in baseball, there's not just a pitcher. There's also a catcher, and that's your job. As the ball is coming towards you, this case, in, in this case, the word of God is coming towards you, your job is to actively listen, to engage the three to four pounds of gray matter in your cranium, and, and to actively engage and then obediently apply what you hear. Or to switch the analogy really quickly, my job is to prepare the word. And, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, because you guys are just getting this much of my preparation time, you know, and I'm putting the meal together, and we've got, the, we've got the, the, the mashed potatoes over here, and we've got the vegetables over here, and then we've got the, you know, the protein over here, and we put it all together, a little garnish on top, and I present this meal to you. But I've, I've been licking my fingers all week, just tasting the goodness of this text. Well, now the, the food's delivered, it's served, but it's your job to chew it up. I'm not doing that for you, okay? That's your job. And so Paul says, I present the word of God to you in all its fullness. And what that means is Paul wasn't content to just stick to the subjects and topics that he fancied or he liked or, or that were appealing to him. That's what a lot of preachers do today. And they just take any text and they talk about the three or four subjects that they're really passionate about. Other sermons, other preachers I listen to, their sermons are just filled with cotton candy. You know what I'm talking about. Man, it tastes really sweet, and you leave with a big smile on your face, but it lacks substance. Paul couldn't do that. His conscience wouldn't let him. He said, I have to present it in all of its fullness, the bitter as well as the sweet stuff. I've heard a lot of sermons where it feels like you know, the, the pastor will get up, and he'll read the word, and then he'll just go off onto any topic he feels like talking about. Not so with Paul. He says, I'm here to give you the word of God in all its fullness. And, and personally, as I think about the best way of doing that, 
The best way to ensure that I'm presenting the whole counsel of God is to teach through the whole word of God. So that's what we're going to continue to do around here. Now, ultimately, I realize that my job isn't just to get through the whole word of God. It's to get the word of God through the whole of you. Amen? But the way that we do that is by taking what God has said in these 66 books and allowing that to minister to our hearts. Why? Because his words never return void. Amen? His word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. Heaven and earth will pass away, the the Bible says, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so we're going to build a foundation of just looking at what God says in his word, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I was always thinking about that. I I thought of something, and I'm going to show you something here. Um, This is a plaque that we have hanging in our lobby here just outside of the church offices. And I, I thought of this as I was working my way through the text, talking about presenting the full counsel of God and the fullness of his word. And, and this says, through the Bible, slow and steady, I've finished my course. And it says, Genesis to Revelation. Now, this is to commemorate the fact that my dad, your pastor, Ray Bentley, my pastor as well, taught through the whole word of God. He started in 1993, and he finished in 2013. So it's got a picture of a turtle, because it took 20 years to do it. But we got through the whole word of God. And then it's signed by all the people that were here for all 20 years. They signed this. You can imagine the fruit that flowed from their lives as a result of sitting under 20 years of teaching, beginning with Genesis and working all the way through to Revelation. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is I can't wait to add the next plaque right above that one. Perhaps some of you will be signing your names as well. Who knows? It might take us longer. I don't know. 20 years is, I don't know. That's a snail's clip right there. So maybe we'll get a little done a little faster. But just the idea of presenting the word in all its fullness. I love that as a model for our ministry. He goes on in verses 26 and 27 to talk about this divine mystery. Paul talks a lot in his letters about this mystery that God had given him divine revelation concerning. Now, when we think of a mystery, we think of something that's spooky or eerie or perhaps even a bit frightening. But in Paul's day, a mystery referred to something that was formerly hidden that now had been revealed. So what was this divine mystery that Paul had been given special revelation concerning? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 27, where he says, I'm here to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And here it is. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Not just Christ with you, but Christ in you. And that tiny little two-letter prepositional phrase summarizes and encapsulates everything that it means to walk with Christ and to be a Christian. No other religion or philosophy dares to make such a bold claim. No other movement implies the living presence of its founder within its adherents or followers. Muhammad doesn't indwell Muslims and Buddha doesn't inhabit Buddhists. 
He might influence them or instruct them, but he doesn't occupy him. No, only Christianity dares to make such a claim. And it was something that was hidden in Old Testament times, only to be revealed by God through Paul in his letters for the benefit of all of us. You see, in the Old Testament, you'll read a lot about God being with different individuals. So God was with Abraham, and God was with Jacob, and he was with David, and he was with Joseph, and many others. You'll also read about God being for Israel and for individuals and going before them and being a rear guard to them. And you'll even read about God in his spirit coming upon individuals, albeit for a season or a time or for a specific purpose or task. And there was always that time when the spirit would lift or leave, which is why the psalmist prayed, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But you'll never read in the Old Testament about the spirit indwelling someone and abiding or remaining with them. That was something that was reserved for the New Testament. You see, in John 16, Jesus said something very puzzling to his disciples. He turned to them, and he knew his time was short, and so he said, it's actually to your guys' advantage that I leave you. What? Can you imagine the looks that Jesus must have seen in the faces of those 12 men that surrounded him when he said that? It's good for you guys that I go away. What? Why? Jesus went on to tell them, so that I can send the Holy Spirit. Now, do you really believe that? You see, according to Jesus, having the spirit within you is actually better than having Jesus standing beside you. That's not me saying that. That's Jesus' words. He says, it's better for you to have the spirit of God within you than it is to have Jesus in physical form standing beside you. Here's why. Because then he becomes your strength. Do you need provision? Jesus can be your supply. Do you need wisdom? Through the indwelling presence of his spirit, he can feed you that wisdom. Do you need strength to overcome a challenge or an obstacle or an addiction? Jesus can can from within you become that strength, need patience to deal with a difficult or challenging person. Jesus is perfectly patient, and he dwells within you. So no matter what you need, Jesus is the answer. Turns out they were right in Sunday school. It doesn't matter what the question is. Jesus is the answer. And he's not just alive in some philosophical or theoretical sense. No, he's alive in you. That's what this verse is saying. It's tremendous. And I thought, like, what's the picture of that? And I thought about Mary. And you can think back to when she received the angelic visitation. And then the months that followed, this angel had told her, Mary, you're, the, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. And, and, and you're going to become pregnant. And you're going to house the Son of God in your womb. What were those months following that angelic announcement like for her, knowing that in her womb she was carrying none other than the Son of God and the Savior of the world. She got to serve as a temporary home for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Man, that must have just blown her mind. But then I thought, you know, Jesus was a fetus in her but he's an abiding force in us, and he will do for us what we could never do on our own. 
And you know that Jesus is in you because just as Jesus continued to grow in Mary until he came out, Jesus will continue to grow in you until he comes out and he comes out in your speech and he comes out in your actions and he comes out in your patience and your joy and your love. That's how it works. So that's what this whole thing is about. It's about the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, Christ being formed in you. Now, what's the goal? We see that in verse 28. This is the goal of the ministry. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. I like how Paul says it. He's the one we proclaim. We don't need the opinions and thoughts of Daniel Bentley. That's not going to get you very far. That's not going to help you very much. We don't need the philosophies of men however smart they may be. What we need is Jesus. You see, far too many preachers spend all their time talking about themselves. And, and as you leave, all you remember is what they told you about themselves. It's him we proclaim. There's this story in John's gospel where this group of Greeks had made their way to Jerusalem to attend this particular festival. And, and while there, they, they located this guy named Philip, who was one of Jesus' followers. And they said, you, you belong to Jesus. And, and we really want to see Jesus. Would you take us to him? Sir, we would see Jesus, is how it puts it in, in the, 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 uh, the NIV version of John 12, 21. And it's a great reminder to me as a minister that my job is simply to bring you to Jesus. I wanted to be reminded of that continually. At our last church in Colorado, when we were out there, we were constructing our sanctuary. And, and at one point before they had put the, the, the stage together, I asked if I could go in. And with a Sharpie, I wrote on, on one of the beams underneath where I would preach. And I wrote that verse, John 12, 21, sir, we would see Jesus. Just to remind myself that every time I stand behind the pulpit, I'm not to give myself, I'm to give Jesus nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, simply Jesus. We proclaim him. To proclaim him is to proclaim his message. And that also means we need to admonish. Another word for that would be warn in some of your translations. Him we proclaim, warning every man. And we live in an age of tolerance, don't we, where it's considered not nice, unloving even, to point out sin or error or wrong. And there are plenty of preachers out there who you'll never hear me say, they'll say, you'll never hear me talk about sin or you'll never hear me warn about this or that being wrong in the eyes of God. And I can't be one of those preachers because if I'm going to give you the whole counsel of God, then I need to warn you. And I would suggest to you that oftentimes that's the most loving thing you can do. If you're standing on a road and you know that the, the road ends and it careens off the edge of a cliff or that the bridge is broken and you see a car traveling down that road and you say, well, I don't want to impose on them and they're going down this road and they're making their own choices. That's the most unloving thing you could do. If you love that person, you're going to get in the road and say, whoa, whoa, you're going to warn them. The road ends. There's a cliff. Please stop. And that's the job of the minister if he's doing the will of the Lord. So we proclaim him. We warn about the script, what the scriptures tell us to warn about. And we teach. To teach is to instruct, just walking our way through the word. And the end game in all of this is so that 
Once we've proclaimed him to everyone, once we've warned everyone, and once we've taught everyone, we get to present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is the goal, guys. At the end of your life, that you would be fully mature in Christ, that you would be grown, no longer tossed to and fro like a child, but able to weather the storms of life and chew on the meat of the word. You know, you think about parents and and the relationship to little kids and how that relationship changes over time. So when my kids were little, we had to we couldn't give them meat yet. They had, you know, this slop or baby food. I don't know how they eat that stuff. And we would, you know, take this little spoon. And my wife and I had this song that we would sing to our kids. And they've got the bib. And this was the song. You ready? You want to hear it? All right, here it was. Open your mouth and let the food come in and chew, chew, chew. And they would smile and cram that nasty stuff in their mouth. And it would, you know, about 75% of it would end up on us or the bib or whatever. And we would sing that song. And it was a lot of fun. Now my two older kids are 17 and 15. And if we were still handling dinner like that, it would be an indication that there's stunted growth, right? When growth becomes stunted, it's always a sign that something has gone wrong. And the same thing is true with Christians. The goal is that we would learn to cut our teeth, as it were, that we would become mature. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For some of us, perhaps the word of the Lord tonight is it's time to grow up. It's time to mature. You see, God meets us in our mess, and he accepts us just as we are. But he refuses to leave us in that state. He brings us from glory to glory. He carries us from grace to grace until we see him face to face. And the other good news is the good work that he begins in us, he will see through to completion. So where are we going as a ministry? And how do you make sure that you're continually growing and maturing? I think the answer is found in this text. Just do the things that we've looked at tonight. Plug yourself into a Christ-centered church. Connect to a ministry that proclaims Jesus and doesn't shy away from the hard truths. And make sure you're planted in a place that teaches the whole counsel of the word of God. And look for ways to minister to one another as we together grow into maturity in Christ. Sound like a good path? This is our North Star. This is where we're going. God is good all the time. Amen. Let's, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for tonight. Thank you for your word. Never ceases to amaze me how you lead, how you guide, how you direct. Thank you for this church, this local gathering of your bride. Lord, how our hearts desire to be conformed into the image of Christ, to know that we are moving towards that picture of maturity that Paul paints for us here. I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened, that they would commit to being a part of what you're doing here, Lord, that's so special, so unique, and we're so blessed. And Lord, we believe you're coming back soon, so we want to have 
our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. We want to proclaim you to a lost world that doesn't have the answers. We may not have the answers, but we know that you do. And so we get to proclaim you and point people to you, Jesus. Would we do that, Father? And may you give us favor. As we work and as we labor, may you supernaturally empower our efforts, Jesus, so that this and what happens here and what happens through our lives can only be explained by the supernatural indwelling presence of Jesus Christ. We want to live lives that are so extraordinary, so miraculous, so unique, so different, that it causes the world to stop and gape and look and stare in awe and wonder and say, they took note of them that they were unlearned and untrained, but that they had been with Jesus. May it be evident to all that we have been with you. We pray and ask all of these things together in the name of Jesus, the name that is higher than every other name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.